This is the third, I expect, probably for a while anyway, the last uh, installment of the Portraits of Friendship. We began this idea of friendship, really uh, the pursuit of friendship as we considered our own communion, as we considered uh, this idea of what is a church, what are the relationships in a church. We recognize that God has uh, given to us a descriptor of that in sibling love, sibling friendship, brother and sister. We refer to each other as that. It's a biblical term uh, that God has called those who are redeemed. He has set them together uh, in a spiritual family of brothers and sisters. We are seeing that the the scriptures reveal to us what it is uh, that makes up these relationships, this idea of friendship. We began this a few weeks ago as we looked at a few narratives. One of those narratives was the narrative of David and the mighty men in 1 Samuel chapter 12. And we also looked at the relationship that the Apostle Paul and Timothy had with one another as we looked and certainly appropriately considered that reflections of true friendship. So I'd like to draw your attention today to another narrative, and that's the narrative in the book of Ruth. Ruth has four chapters. It uh, takes place really during the time of the Judges. So the Judges is a period of about 300 years between uh, the book of Joshua and the book of Ruth. Uh, really, the, the, uh, the history would begin again there in 1 Samuel, after the book of Judges. And so we see also that uh, Boaz... Uh, A little bit of a mysterious figure in a way, I think. Certainly a representation of the Lord Jesus Christ as kinsman redeemer. But nonetheless, Boaz was a contemporary of Gideon. So you might recall that in the beginning of the story of Ruth, Elimelech had a wife. Her name was Naomi. He had two boys, Malon and Chilion. And they went to Moab. Moab's about 50 miles away from where they lived. Uh, And that was during the time, as I said, that the, uh, the Midianites were invading Israel. Uh, They were destroying the crops or stealing them, of course, oppressing and killing the people. So Elimelech was, uh, uh, you know, persuaded that he should go to Moab, and he spent about 10 years there. Uh, And so the story obviously has has them coming back. And so nonetheless, so I want to draw your attention to this narrative. As we look at the subject of friendship, it would be important that we, we do you know, recognize that much of this is is learned by example. Uh, you may have heard the phrase, often things are, are caught, not taught. The Lord Jesus said, follow me. Uh, it's, it's uh, I suppose, uh, an absolute certainty that the Lord Jesus watched his father Joseph swing a hammer. Uh, and he likely said something like, son, follow me. The Apostle Paul said, follow me. And so I would encourage you, as we, of course, draw much from the example of narrative in the Scriptures for friendship, that we recognize that example is exhortation. Example is exhortation. The Lord Jesus says, follow me. That's a command. That's a command to do what He does, right? To speak as He speaks. And so, let's look at the book of Ruth here in your hearing. You heard Ruth chapter 2, a few verses there. And so we're, I want to again place in the back of your mind a few things that we have picked up in the Scriptures, this idea that true friendship involves a commitment to a profound purpose. True friendship is more durable than difficulty. Certainly you'll begin to see the life of Ruth and Boaz here. Friendship involves a covenantal commitment. 
Friendship is duty adorned with devotion. True friendship is not natural. It requires redemption, a new life. That's what the Scriptures reveal. We also see here that to be a true friend, we must pursue virtue. We must pursue spiritual progress. We must pursue those who will reprove us. We must pursue helpful skills such that we, as the Bible says, if we want friends, we must be friendly. What does it mean to be friendly? And so here we look at the book of Ruth. And so I would draw your attention as we really begin here in Ruth. I've introduced it to you. That really takes up most of chapter 1. We acknowledge that Ruth's shape, Ruth, excuse me, Naomi's faith is a bit shaken. As you look at uh, Ruth chapter 1, uh, verse 19, Ruth and Naomi show up in Bethlehem. Verse 20, she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? In Ruth chapter 2, verse 11, would really give us a little bit of insight into into Ruth here. As Boaz is responding to Ruth here, Boaz answered Ruth, he says, All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. We'll look back at some of these verses, but just to place this in perspective, so here is Ruth, who by the testimony of Boaz and apparently by all those that were in Bethlehem, says the whole town understood and saw that Ruth and Naomi showed up. And Boaz understood that Ruth's parents were still living. Ruth left her mother mother and her father and the gods of Moab, the false gods of Moab, and she followed Naomi. And so we're already given a bit of insight into the character uh, of of this young lady. Who, who has committed herself to Naomi and to Naomi's God. And we understand that while Naomi's faith has been clearly shaken, Ruth's faith, on the other hand, although likely uh, quite new, um, nonetheless, she has been drawn lovingly by a Savior, and we see that here. But as we look back at chapter 1, we see that Naomi is determined to go back to Israel. She... She counsels her uh, her daughters-in-law. We we see here, uh, for instance, in verse eleven, Naomi said, "Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until?" They are grown. And what we have here is an introduction to the Liverite uh, marriage law, and we see that that's going to have a significant part to play in the narrative of Ruth because uh, it's, 
it uh, certainly touches the, the whole concept of kinsman redeemer. Uh, we see that really with the piece of property that, uh, that Naomi has, uh, that she has responsibility and some rights over because her husband has died. The heirs of her husband, uh, Malon and Chilion, her two boys, are also dead. Uh, but what we, what we also see here is an expectation that we, for instance, get another glimpse at in Genesis chapter 38, where Judah counsels Tamar to wait on her husband's brother to come of age so they could marry. Now that story doesn't end very well, unfortunately, but nonetheless we see that what Naomi is getting at here is in terms of the Liverite marriage, the idea was that, uh, that the brothers of Chilion and Malon uh, should marry her daughters-in-law, but she doesn't have any other sons. And she has no prospect for other sons. Uh, it's, there's no real possibility for that. And so she, she encourages uh, Orpah and Ruth to stay in Moab, to, to expect better there. And so again, this is not only a, a revelation uh, of the Liverite marriage and her understanding, which at least reveals to us that there is certainly some level of commitment to God and to God's ways. We also see that Naomi's faith has, has been very, very shaken in this. Um, particularly in contrast to Boaz. And so we'll, we'll see that here as we go on. But nonetheless, we see that uh, while Naomi's faith is shaken, Ruth persists in this covenantal commitment to her. And again, what we see here in this commitment is a number of things. And this would... Uh, this would be one of those sermons that has diminishing points. The first one would be the largest, and the next would be much less. And so I want to really focus our attention on what it is that Ruth says here. And we can see in it these aspects of friendship, a covenantal commitment we have here. Really, her commitment, Ruth's commitment to Naomi is, is really a standard, if you will of commitment to from one individual to another. It, it is no less than a template for faithfulness coming out of the, of the mouth of Ruth. We also see, obviously, that she has a profound purpose. We're inclined, it's appropriate that we're inclined to see that Ruth is one who is committed to the God of Israel. She witnessed that in her husband. She witnessed it in her, in her, uh, her parents-in-law, uh, in Naomi and Elimelech, and so we see that she's committed to that, a profound purpose. She would leave land, she would leave parents to go and invest herself in what she recognized was the real thing. We see also that there's no difficulty, apparently, that would take Ruth off of her task that God has set before her. Her her friendship is far more durable than the difficulty that she might anticipate. And also we see here this sense of duty, but also, also that over overarches that, a devotion to the truth, to the God of truth, uh, and of course to Naomi. Let's look at this commitment that she makes. So again, the context here is Naomi really has presented to Orpah and Ruth a hopeless situation. Uh, it looks hopeless. Hey, if there's any hope for you, it's going to be here in Moab. And, and really what we see here, and this is one of the reasons that I would say, and other Bible students would say, that, that Ruth Shake has been, Ruth, or rather Naomi's faith has been a bit shaken because, because again, she, she should direct Ruth's attention to the God who lives and to the God who, in fact, uh, has set before her not only the ultimate Redeemer and the Messiah, but also the possibility of a kinsman Redeemer in the flesh. But let's look at her commitment here. 
in verse 16 through 18 of chapter 1. Ruth said to Naomi, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Ruth persuaded Naomi that she was serious. That uh, the discussion was over. Uh, That no matter the pleadings and the sympathetic longings of Naomi toward Ruth and Orpah, Ruth had set uh, her mind on that which we would be persuaded is right. And she uh, so persuaded Naomi of that as well. Now what do you think inclined Ruth to this sort of commitment? Why would she say that? Why would she do that? Could it have anything to do with Naomi's own conspicuous and virtuous faith in God? While it has been shaken, uh, Naomi is not the cheerful individual that perhaps she once was because of all the difficulty in her life. Another question for us, is Ruth overstepping her abilities here since she doesn't know what the future holds? Ruth's making a a very serious and sober commitment. It is uh, absolutely in the form of a covenant. She brings upon herself blessings for faithfulness and curses for a lack of faithfulness. She says, May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Faithful vows such as marriage... Uh, a, a marriage vow or a military oath of office bring with them the understanding that regardless of the unknown challenges ahead by the grace of God, we can keep our commitments. Commitments rightly made can conform us to righteousness, courage, and kindness. So we do see here the situation with Naomi was quite desperate. Her faith had been shaken. Travel was dangerous. This is what Ruth had to anticipate. They had to travel at least 50 miles. Uh, We see uh, even as Ruth took upon herself uh, the really the right of uh, the the poor in Israel to glean, we recognize that that was a dangerous thing to do. It was physically dangerous. Uh, And certainly they recognized that it was physically dangerous for a single woman to travel Uh, uh, certainly dangerous for two women to travel. Ruth understood that. She anticipated that, but yet she makes this vow. She proves that her friendship is more durable than the difficulties before her. And she also proves that she has a commitment to God, even though she likely knows very little about Him. So perhaps another question for us would be this. Have you ever followed through on something or completed a difficult task only because you made a commitment.
in the marriage counseling room, often you might hear a couple say, well, it's only the piece of paper that's holding us together. And what they mean by that is it's only the document, only the marriage document, only this written oath that we've signed that keeps us together. And that the implication there uh, is that if that's all that holds us together, uh, therefore we shouldn't be together. But friends, that's, that's the very validation of a commitment. Friends, it is that bare, naked commitment, if you will, that often draws us to faithfulness. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, look further than that as a necessity for some level of commitment. Something greater, it seems, is implied in only this is holding us together. But the reality is, is, that, is that when we look, for instance, at the O's likely that David's might have been made to him, the commitment that Paul and Timothy had to one another, and also this commitment that Ruth has taken to herself to commit to Naomi, nonetheless, it was a very important thing. It strengthened her. It constrained her, if you will, to do that which is good and right and true. Taking initiative and entering into a real commitment is not a rejection of the beautiful sovereignty of God. It's trusting in the principles of His Word to make consequential decisions that will ultimately be used by God as a means of further action. There's a certain power in making decisions. One of the aspects of image-bearing is the ability to make a decision to do something we should do, uh, that is a lawful decision, and to set in place by the grace of God means in which we can succeed in our purposes and plans. You know, and I've noticed among people who embrace the sovereignty of God that there is sometimes, I'd say many times, a reluctance to make a kind of sober decision and commitment to do something. It's as if they're working against the sovereignty of God in that. Because what happens is, is it seems that some embrace the sovereignty of God and they use it regularly as a means by which they seem to glorify failure. And I'll give you an example of that. Let's say, for instance, that, uh, that, uh, that they have committed or they have decided to do a certain thing, a certain, take a certain course of action, and they say, oh, well, I guess the Lord... Didn't have, didn't, we didn't want me to do that because it didn't work out. And we should rightly ask the question, well, what did you set in place for your success? What, what sort of plans did you make uh, in accordance with the grace of God and the glory of God and the resources that had been set around you? And so we, we should rightly ask that question when we, when we may be inclined to blame the sovereignty of God and to enjoy some sort of glorification of failure when the reality is, is we, didn't, we didn't trust the Lord to make the steps that it would take to do what we're persuaded is a lawful decision. This may be something simple like leaving in time to take traffic into account or even a flat tire. You say, well, I guess the Lord didn't want me to get there on time. Well... Did you, did you consider leaving early? Right? It's a very simple idea, but you see, we, we may be inclined again to blame the sovereignty of God on something that really is far different than that. Right? 
It may be uh, something like reading the Bible in a year, learning the catechism. You may say, well, I guess it wasn't the Lord's will because I just didn't get to it. Well, what, did, what sort of things did you set in place for your success? Right? Did you commit yourself to less of this thing and more of this thing? It might be building a playground for your children or going fishing with your family. These sort of simple things that do take some uh, sort of logistical pre-planning, right? Uh, and it's, it's a very simple matter in a number of ways. But nonetheless, it seems that we may be fearful of making a commitment. But Ruth, for us, is a great example in this case. She had set before her an inclination to go where God was, to go with God's people. She had before her a lady who was in a very desperate situation, and she recognized that it would be right for her to go along with her. And we see that the Lord has done much in that. I'd like to draw your attention to a hymn that likely you know. It isn't in our hymnal. It's the hymn entitled, I've Decided to Follow Jesus. Before you get upset with me for mentioning that hymn, please listen to the story. Because likely you've associated that hymn with the old sawdust trail. You've associated that hymn with an invitation call at the end of a service. You've associated that hymn with some idea of self-sovereignty, of this idea that what the hymn is referring to is very clearly this Arminian or even Pelagian idea that what it takes for me to be saved is for me to vote for Jesus. But I'm here to tell you that's not what the hymn writer intended in the hymn. And so I'd like to tell a brief story about this hymn. The lyrics are based on the last words of a man in Gero, Assam, in India. They're not actually a declaration of self-sovereignty in salvation, but a determination by the grace of God to be steadfast in the face of persecution. So about 150 years ago, there was a great revival in Wales, and there were many missionaries that were sent because of that. Some of those missionaries ended up in this area where this man lived. So a man, his wife, and his two children came to faith in Christ. And this man's faith proved contagious, and many villagers began to trust in Christ. And the chief of the village was very angry. And so he paraded his persecuting men into where this family was, and they killed immediately his two children. And he called the family who had first converted and The man said, I have decided to follow Jesus. And he said, I will kill your wife as well. The man replied, though no one joins me, still I will follow. And then as he faced death, he said, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. No turning back. This is decision for Christ. This is true decision for Christ. This isn't voting on Jesus. <laughs> this is by the power of a redeemed life by the grace of God determining that you will be faithful. Does that mean you won't fail? No, it doesn't. 
but it's a whole lot better than not deciding. You'll find much better results if you determine to be faithful. And that's the idea. That's the idea behind the hymn. That's the idea behind uh, what it is that Ruth has committed herself to with Naomi. Now I'd like to draw your attention to another decision and an exhortation to decide right here in the book of Joshua in chapter 24. I'd ask you to turn there. Joshua chapter 24. This is likely one of the most common passages of Scripture. Potentially the most common passage that might adorn the walls of God's people. So here is General Joshua here in verse 15 of chapter 24. I'll start in verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him. So Joshua is seeing the end of his days. He's about to die. These are some of his last words. He has led Israel uh, to a glorious position. Uh, We understand that the conquest of the land is certainly not complete, but nonetheless, Joshua, uh, it should and can be said that he has done his duty. And he's been faithful. So he says to those, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. Now, what's Joshua saying? Well, he's saying a number of things. But not least of which, Joshua is saying that you must daily decide to follow the Lord. When you get up in the morning, if you don't do this, you're going to fail. You're going to fail. I have decided to follow Christ today. And you can look back on that simple decision in the morning when you're tempted to sin, when you're tempted to do something that you shouldn't do. And you can say this, I have decided, like Joshua, to follow Christ. And Joshua is also affirming this idea that when you don't do that, when you are not actively involved in following the Lord Jesus, he's also wanting them to understand that the possibility exists that you will follow something else. And don't act as if it wasn't a decision. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Choose you this day. Wives shouldn't be satisfied with the one time their husband tells tells her that he loves her at their wedding day. He must choose every day that he loves his wife and persuade her of that every single day. And we see, obviously, more expanded in this idea that Joshua shows us. I also would draw your attention to Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50. Now, we have the same idea here in this passage, of course, that is looking forward to our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. Isaiah chapter 50. Beginning in verse 4, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, 
that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Now what's the idea? Well, the idea is this, is that Isaiah is modeling for us that which the Lord Jesus Christ certainly will do. I have set my face like flint. This is really a republishing of this idea that I have decided to follow God. I will not look to the right or to the left. I will follow God. I have decided to follow God. This is the idea of decision, right? It's not self-sovereignty. It's taking God at His promise and committing ourselves, not being afraid to commit ourselves to a course of action. Will there be days that are hard? Will there be days where you fail? Yes, there will be. But if you refuse to commit yourself and claim that you're falling into the sovereignty of God, then you don't understand what the Bible is saying here about this idea. So we have here Ruth's covenantal commitment. She has decided distinctively to set her face toward the God of Israel, toward the true God. And he obviously is showing in us that we should do the same. And now here comes Boaz in chapter 2. So I draw your attention to chapter 2 here. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now what a coincidence. The sovereign hand of God. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. It is a risky business to even glean in the field. It's a very interesting thing, too, because it seems to me that Ruth may have done a little homework on where Boaz's field was. And it also seems to me that Boaz may have done a little homework on finding out just who this Ruth is. 
And where does he stand in the pecking order of kinsman redeemer? He knew that there was someone in front of him. And he also understood that this Ruth was a worthy woman, as he calls her that. So, I'd like to draw your attention now to chapter 3. And so we have this occasion here where Boaz, strong in the faith, commends God, anticipates God's favor. He has particular care over Ruth. He invites her not only to lunch, but encourages her basically not merely to glean, but to reap his field, to be with the reapers and to take what she can in that way. And that draws us to chapter 3, verse 1. Naomi, your mother-in-law, said to her daughter, Should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well for you? Now, this is an interesting parental responsibility that I'm persuaded Ruth, is an ex- rather Naomi, is an example for us here. Naomi takes some responsibility in the well-being of Ruth and her future. And I do commend this as a commitment to her and an expression of true friendship. Now, of course, this places Ruth in another risky situation. So while there is, uh, I think, an apparent understanding of the possibilities, Boaz is very kindly to Ruth. Uh, He does, uh, I am persuaded, seem to be uh, courting her, perhaps. Uh, and we understand that Ruth, again, is, is uh, completely above board here. But nonetheless, uh, with the Leverite understanding, Ruth is doing no less than asking Boaz to marry her. And that's what uh, her mother-in-law, Naomi, calls her to. And again, Ruth takes a risk in this as she, and I would encourage you, children to read this. It's a wonderful story. But Ruth uh, is to follow in with the customs of the day. Uh, and in the evening time, she, she goes to where, um, where Boaz was reaping uh, and, and uh, taking care of the harvest there. And he uncovers, she uncovers his feet. And uh, when he discovered that, he said, Who are you? In verse 9 of chapter 3. And Ruth said, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Boaz knew exactly what Ruth was saying to him. And we see here in verse 10, he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether rich, rather, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Virtue. Virtue. Ruth pursued virtue and faithfulness, and it adorned her devotion to Naomi. And Boaz understood that, we see. And Boaz was drawn to her and was delighted to take her uh, and to be to her a kinsman redeemer. Now, Boaz uh, is certainly presented as a very wise man. I draw your attention to chapter 4. Well, let's look at actually the last verse in chapter 3. 
Naomi understands Boaz. And Boaz also is a man of character, rightly so. We see this in the narrative, and we understand that Boaz is a man of dispatch. He's a man of action. He's a man of his word. Naomi understands that. Verse 18, she replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he settles the matter today. Decision. Decision. Boaz, determined. You think he decided that day to make matters right with Ruth and with Naomi. And in fact, that's exactly what he did. Let's, let's look and see what he says. Verse 1 of chapter 4, Boaz had gone up to the gate, sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. Boaz knows exactly who the first Redeemer is. And he looks for him. And he finds him and he says, sit down here. Verse 2, he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Those would be the witnesses. He said to the Redeemer, listen to the wisdom with which Boaz makes this statement. Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. I love Boaz. Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. And the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. A lesser man than Boaz. A lesser man. You see, Boaz understood what was right. He set his face like flint and determined to do that which is right. Boaz fully understood the consequences that taking to himself this parcel of land, first of all, was only temporary. Well, we understand in the state of Texas that we only rent our land from the government because of our taxes. There was not the same thing, but something similar when land changed families in Israel because the year of Jubilee, which came every 50 years, would return all of the land back to its original family. And so whenever you bought a piece of land, you were only buying the produce of that land for a certain period of time. Boaz understood that, but he also understood that a great beneficiary of Boaz's right action wasn't himself. He, at this point, is unconcerned about his own investment, if you will, and realizes God is involved in this. This is the right thing to do. And Boaz moves on and does the right thing. 
You know the rest of the story. Verse 13 of chapter 4, Ruth and Boaz marry. They have a son, and then we see the genealogy of David here. These are the generations of Perez in verse 18 of chapter 4. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. In the lineage of the Lord Jesus, we see this one, these two that God brought together, The power of making a determined commitment to follow the Lord, to do that which is right. And we see that God has brought about a great, great fruitfulness in that. The true story of Ruth and Boaz, of course, is a precursor to the idea that the Lord Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. We are bought and taken in by Him, rescued from a hell in the present and promised a heavenly future. The Lord Jesus Christ has set His face like flint, as Isaiah chapter 50 says, in determining that He will follow the Lord. Let us follow Him in that as well. Let's pray.